Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about how to thrive and survive in this extreme heat. I'm talking today with Dr. Rob Sanders. He attended the Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, and he did his residency at Phoenix Children's Hospital. He's the Director of Ambulatory Operations in the Department of Pediatrics at UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Sanders, thank you so much for being here today in the podcast studio. Thanks for having me. So you have a passion for wilderness medicine. Absolutely. So um, it's, it's been uh, a couple years now that I've been a wilderness medicine instructor, uh, and that, uh, that really grew out of my passion and my love for be, uh, out, the being in the outdoors. Uh, so a brief history about me as I grew up as a Boy Scout and uh, being outside and doing camping and high adventure and, and trips in the wilderness was really a big part of what I did growing up. And from then on through college and my adult years, I've continued to do that with backpacking trips and hiking and kayaking and uh, really just, you know, being outdoors a lot is kind of been the focus of a lot of the thing, a lot of my free time. I came to San Antonio via Colorado and then before that Phoenix and had some amazing opportunities to spend some time in some incredible places there. And uh, shortly after moving here, I was confused because San Antonio was a city and I didn't really know much about it and didn't know about how I would fit in here and, and, and be able to really engage and do the things that I love to do. And it didn't take long. Um, believe it or not, I think that most of the listeners would agree that there's a lot of amazing uh, outdoor activities to do around San Antonio. And one of the things that I got into is kayaking and started kayaking on the, uh, the Guadalupe River, the San Marcos River. And then shortly after that, I was introduced to Big Bend out in West Texas. Big Bend National Park is a very large national park right on the border, um, right honestly in the Big Bend of Texas. And I was introduced to kayaking out there and started uh, um, doing kayaking trips out in Big Bend. And talk about some remote country. Uh, being out in the middle of the desert in, the, uh, you know, in a huge national park in a place that has literally, there's literally no people. You, there's really good likelihood that you will not see people for days down there. It quickly became apparent that it was really important for me to know a little bit more than about wilderness medicine, about practicing medicine in a place that doesn't have the resources of my clinic or my emergency room uh, that, uh, that, I, I, real, that I, I started to explore wilderness medicine. So I took my own class in wilderness medicine uh, at that point, and that was about six years ago, and I fell in love with it. And being able to use your hands, your brain, uh, and really not much else, in all honesty. Uh, you get trained to assess and help patients with basically nothing. With your hand, again, with your hands, with your eyes, uh, you have to make, uh, you know, you have to kind of decide what you're going to do with a patient with, with very limited resources, water, ibuprofen, Tylenol, uh, you know, maybe a stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff, and, a t and you, maybe a satellite phone if you're lucky. So... The simplicity of it and the complexity of it all came together for me, and it really it, it fit. It kind of meshed my passion of the outdoors with my, my passion for medicine. And being able to 
practice medicine in a place that um, I, 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 you know, you don't have the ability to just get any lab that you might need or an x-ray uh, was really challenging for me and exciting. We were talking just a few minutes ago when I was telling you about a, a canoe accident I was in with my father where I was, we hit a rock. It was on in the Guadalupe, Guadalupe River somewhere, and I was pinned under the rock, and he got me out and saved me. But um, I was focused on the rock and missing it, and that's a great life lesson that you mentioned. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I shouldn't have been focusing on the rock <laughs> and missing that's it. That's the key. That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, one of the things we learn about when we're kayaking, rafting, is that you don't want to focus on the thing you need to miss, right? That big, scary obstacle in the middle. You don't want to focus on that scary, big obstacle. Because what happens is that big obstacle turns into a tractor beam and sucks you right in, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to get around that obstacle, whether it be in life or on the river, focus on how you can do it. So focus on the positive, point positive. So point your boat positively around that rock, to the right or to the left, either way, but make a decision. And that's another thing, another important thing to, to remember about life and, and, and kayaking, canoeing, if, if, if we can go there, is that you have to make a decision, right? Whether it be right or wrong, go right or go left, you got to do something because if you keep going and, and you don't, and you don't make, that, make that decision, you'll run right into that rock. Not doing something is its own decision. Not that's true. That's true. Yeah. So you make no decision. So you, you run right up against that obstacle and it, and it knocks you out of the boat. So does all of this stuff you do out in the wilderness, does that help all the other hard things you're doing and work-wise seem easier? It, it, it helps. It, it for sure gives me some balance, I think, for one, of course. Um, and, it, and, and yes, it absolutely does. Having the experience of, of working outdoors and taking care of patients in places where I have very little resources has absolutely made me a better doctor. I've had the opportunity to practice uh, wilderness medicine, really, in Africa and South America, uh, wow. Texas, Colorado, uh, and a number of different places. And, you know, the, you know, in thinking about wilderness medicine, wilderness medicine is Again, taking care of patients in austere places with no resources, um, and, and and also remembering that you know we might I can't call an ambulance to come pick up a patient you know thirty miles and do a hundred mile rafting or river trip. It's being able to maintain and sustain life the best as possible during that time. Um, so yeah, those those experiences have taught me a lot about my approach to patient care as well, to be able, it's been made be a better doctor, um, again, using my hands, using my eyes, getting a good history, and being able to filter down my differential diagnosis without necessarily having to use as much testing at times, or filtering, filtering my diagnosis to that point where my sensitivity after t using the tests really goes up quite a bit. And in fact, so you're leaving soon to spend a week at Philmont, the scout yeah. camp that is extremely, uh, an extremely remote and it's an amazing place, challenging environment. Absolutely. So this is, if you're not familiar with Philmont, it's a, it's a, about a hundred, a uh, hundred thousand acre ranch in Northern New Mexico, about 15 to 18,000 scouts uh, participants go through that camp every summer. And there's generally on average about two to 3,000 
participants and about a thousand staff on this this these grounds at one time. They're all doing backcountry things. They're all backpacking. They're all horse. They're horseback riding. They're shooting guns. You know, and target uh, targets and shot in uh, you know clay pigeon or whatever, right? Uh, but they're all doing ri- r- slightly risky activities. You know, lo- most of these kids that come to this camp uh, are just like the t- typical teenagers in your practice. They spent most of the summer on devices or maybe playing soccer, but they didn't. They've never had an experience of being r- out in the remote wilderness before. And uh, Philmont does an amazing job of preparing all these participants out there, but accidents happen. So uh, what I'm going to be able, what I'm going to be doing next week is spending a week in our their infirmary, which is a really neat place where we have doctors, medical students, and paramedics who support the operations of the Boy Scout base and uh, and take care of sick and injured patients, uh, adults, kids, you name it. And my dad is an Eagle Scout, and my some of my brothers are, and so I remember the harrowing stories from Philmont, and you have to carry everything on your back. Absolutely, yeah. These are like 10 to 12 day backpacking trips. And exactly, that's exactly right. These families, not these families, these kids and their parents and the participants are all having to sustain themselves on the trail for up to 12 days. And then you have to tie your food up. Yep. Yeah. You got, there's, there's bears and, and, uh, and mountain lions and all sorts of critters out there. And you got to, you know, anything that smells like food, or even toothpaste, you have to make sure that bears don't have access to. And you certainly don't want it in your tent because uh, you don't want a, a visitor in the middle of the night for sure. Rob, are you worried, the most worried about the heat heading into Philmont? Or what would you say about that? Heat is always a factor, uh, and when we're when we're participating in activities outside in the in the south or in the summer, right? Uh, a part of my preparation for going there and uh, the preparation of the clinic and the infirmary and all the staff out there is to train the the participants in how to avoid getting too hot and being potentially injured. Uh, and it's always, there's, there, every summer there's always going to be some sort of heat-related injury or illness that happens out there uh, just as, because of the nature of the activity. Being outside, exerting yourself a lot more than normal, uh, not drinking enough water, getting dehydrated, uh, all these factors, and then, and then not knowing when, and not knowing when um, to, say, to stop and, and take a break. All those factors certainly play into heat injury uh, for sure. Are you kind of at a base camp yeah. where the clinic is? Yeah, we're at the base camp. We have we have staff that go out into the backcountry and uh, essentially act like as paramedics, and they call us on the radio, and we are their medical control. And then when they come back to the base camp in the infirmary, we take care of the patients there. Is it often that someone has to be rescued by helicopter? No, believe it or not, actually. Um, I, they do such a good job with risk mitigation there that they really have very few situations where helicopters are having to be involved. Uh, you know, they, they know the risks of, of, you know, teenage kids coming to a camp and, and shooting black powder rifles or riding horses or uh, h- hiking and backpacking for hours at a time. So they've done this for so long that they do a lot of work to train um, the staff, the participants, in ways to mitigate that risk. So luckily, no, that we don't have to f- call in helicopters too often. And, and, and luckily as well, there's really very few fatalities out there. That's great to hear. 
So talking about mitigating risk, we're under an extreme heat advisory here today in San Antonio. It's expected to reach 102 today. It's the third week of this extreme heat advisory. What's your number one piece of advice for our pediatric practitioner listener? What should what should they be saying to patients? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to frame uh, heat-related injury and illness, especially in San Antonio. We, living in South Texas, and I, I know that a lot of my colleagues here who are listening to the podcast have been here for a while, so they get it. They've been outside. They know what it's like here in the summer. But what's different and what's changing, in, in my opinion, and what we, we've been seeing with a lot of the data is that it's not hot in just August anymore. It's really hot from June to August, right? So even the, I remember at the beginning of this summer, we were seeing close to, if not above 100 degree temperatures uh, that early in the summer. That sustained type of heat uh, over long periods of time can certainly not is definitely not good and can and definitely be dangerous and concerning. The, uh, the big factor that we have down here in San Antonio is the humidity. Um, which really which bumps up the danger of heat significantly. And we've all heard what the heat index, right? The heat index is, is really that number that takes into account both the actual ambient, the, the, the temperature plus and the humidity. And then the humidity acts as a multiplier for that heat. And that'll bring us to even higher number. That's the kind of that's essentially that feel that how it feels outside. It might be might, they might say it's 98, but it feels like 106. That's what that's where the heat index comes in. That humidity acts as that multiplier. So that multiplies the risk of of getting of getting uh, injured or uh, sick from heat. Right. So we have to be really cognizant of that. Uh, you know, you, uh, other places I've lived, Phoenix, uh, Colorado, you know, especially Phoenix, right? Phoenix gets super hot too. And there's no doubt that, there, that heat is a huge factor uh, out there for health as well. Uh, it's, a little, it's definitely less humid there, so the heat index will never come up as much. The hotter it is outside, the more moist it is outside, the more dangerous it gets. Be because of that moisture in the air, People cannot evaporatively cool. So that's one of the ways that our body tries to get rid of heat, right? We sweat. And when we sweat, we, we, and people can know that here. So, you know, when I moved down here to San Antonio, it was, gosh, it was probably 10 years ago now, I would go out and mow my lawn. I would start sweating in, within five minutes. Five minutes. Yes. I and, and barely exert myself even a little bit. I moved here from Colorado. I would have done the same task, more than likely at a very similar temperature, and maybe broken a little bit of a sweat at the end of that. Is it better to not wipe off the sweat, like to keep it there? No, you, it, wiping off the sweat helps uh, definitely kind of continue the evaporative process for sure. But that's the, 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 the issue we have here is that because it's so moist out, because we sweat so much here, we don't cool down. Because the, 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 you want to wipe that sweat off, actually, and you want, uh, because you want to essentially dry, that drying helps the evaporation process. So in Colorado, when you sweat it, it dries up, and you evaporate, that sweat evaporates off your body, and you cool off. Here, your sweat just kind of bluch, sticks to you, right? We all know how that is. Yes. I went out for a run this morning, and I was drenched in five minutes, right? Yes. You cannot get cool. It makes it, the heat so much more dangerous. So 
With advice to patients, Boy Scouts can be a good model about being prepared. Is, is that kind of the message, you know, in that short time in the exam room? Always be prepared, right. And I know my colleagues all agree with me on this. Anticipatory guidance is a huge part of the re- part of the, w- the reason we're here. We give vaccines. We monitor health. We take care of our, our patients and their families and their times in need. And we also give anticipatory guidance. And one of the th- some, a couple of the, the things that we want to think about giving, uh, into, you know, as far as guidance goes to our families in regards to the heat, all right? A couple of these things always come to mind. One is try to avoid the heat as much as possible, right? So going out early in the morning and later at night. When, that, when the direct sun isn't coming straight down on us. Interestingly enough here, the hottest time of day is usually not midday. It's closer to like 4 or 5 o'clock at night. Uh, and so you, it's important to k- keep that in mind. Uh, but again, participating in events, going out and going for a run, taking your kid for a walk, going to the park, all these things we want to be thinking about doing early in the morning here, probably before 10 a.m., right? Um, and, or going in the evening as the sun's starting to set. It's getting closer to seven or eight o'clock at night right now. So it's, you know, for our young kids and toddlers, it might be a little too late in the evening, but you know, that, that midday sun, um, will heat your body up very quickly. And because we live in South Texas, it's going to get really hard to cool down. And we need to be keeping an eye on our kids out there when we're participating, regardless of the time of day for signs that they might be getting overheated. And that could be more dangerous the younger the child? Absolutely. Younger kids are more at risk for uh, heat-related illness than, than, than older kids. And, and, then, and the same, you know, same kind of goes for both ends of the spectrum, the very old and the very young. Uh, the, very, the very young don't really know what's going on, and they will not respond to being you know, too hot in a way you know, that, that you or I would, would say, I'm getting too hot, I need to go into the shade. They'll keep playing, they'll keep participating uh, until until they kind of hit that hit the cliff right which we know in pediatrics can can be really dangerous so our kids compensate right so kids pedi- pedi- pediatric patients they compensate till they can't compensate anymore it could happen quickly and, and and the 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 right they can get pretty sick from heat really quickly and actually I see that in the whack I, I practice in the emergency room and urgent care for a very long time and you see that very commonly uh, with kids who push it too far um, mostly mostly in teenage kids but it, it can definitely happen in younger kids too when parents don't really know the signs um, but first and foremost you know if you're gonna go out you know if you're gonna participate outside in the heat right now you want to make sure you're hydrated and I always suggest prehydrate right drink a lot drink a bottle of water before you even go outside okay prehydrate now I don't want you to drink like five bottles of water because you'll feel really terrible but Prehydrate before you go. Have water nearby. And I keep saying water because water really and truthfully is the best thing that you can hydrate yourself and hydrate your child with. Obviously, infants are different, but hydrating yourself and hydrating your children, the best thing you can hydrate yourself with water. Gatorade, Powerade, sports drinks that have sugar and salt, we generally don't need that. We eat snacks usually that have sugar and salt in them and if you're eating snacks or you had breakfast that morning the likelihood is that you've had enough sugar and or salt 
to sustain you for your activity period. So water, water, water. I know that a lot of pediatricians are struggling uh, with their patients who are, have obesity, right? And we talk all the time about sugary drinks and beverages. And that's one. this is another place that pediatricians can really intervene and say that water really is the best thing to hydrate their themselves with. So water, water, water. Keep it cold if possible. Cold, cold helps. It makes you feel more comfortable. It, sometimes it delays gastric emptying a little bit. So, you know, someone who chugs a real, a nice cold bottle of water, they might throw, you know, there's always, they might throw up. I've actually a really crazy story about my daughter who overhydrated herself in Big Bend. We were uh, finishing up a pretty strenuous hike. And so, I, and she was actually starting to have signs, a little, a few signs of heat exhaustion. And as a, as I was getting nervous. Uh, we were in a bigger group. The bigger, most of the group had kind of pushed on. And it was just me and her that were left. And red in the face, the, was sweating profusely, was tired, was slowing down. Uh, and all she, she just kept drinking water, drinking water, drinking water, drinking water. And she filled herself up with water. And uh, she threw up. And we were by ourselves and I'm like, you know, so yes. So as a physician, you know, even with your own family in the wilderness, these types of situations can happen. Wow. We had to stop. We had to get in the shade. We had to take a nice long break. Um, you know, cooling her off was also really important as well. Uh, and we made it through the hike. But the first, but the hydration really, again, back to that water is the best hydration. It really is. Um, uh, but prehydrate, drink water, encourage water. I think it's really important to remind not only your kids, but the other people that you're with to be drinking water. Uh, and that even goes for like your day at SeaWorld or Fiesta, Six Flags Fiesta, Texas. You know, I can't, you know, think about your family, talk to, talk to the people in your group. We do this all the time on backpacking and kayaking trips. We actually do water checks. You got to, you know, we stop and we all drink water. Right, we stop and everyone intentionally drinks water. If we're backpacking, we we've gone a few miles, we stop, and you know we're all really intentional about watching each other drink water. Every couple of hours or every hour? Every hour, oh for sure, you, even more. Right, so you want to be you know it depends on how much activity you're doing, but for a standard an adult who's doing a really strenuous activity, about a liter an hour or so is about what you need to be doing. Um, and you know, and at the same time, uh, you know making sure that you eat okay so hydration is a piece of it but the other piece of it is is providing energy for your engine okay your body is the engine right and if you deplete the engine of calories then the the, the then your system will break down a lot faster so fluids sustain as well as food right so we always got to keep our engines fueled up by eat, making sure we're eating healthy food Let's go over the symptoms. And, and do you recommend that pediatricians be talking to symptoms of, of heat stroke, heat illness to every patient? I, th I think, I, I don't know that it's nece necessary to, to talk about that specifically. I think maybe, uh, you know, the prevention is probably the most important thing. Um, and then letting, letting, making sure that parents are monitoring their kids for those first signs. The redness of the face, the discomfort. Sometimes kids say that they're dizzy or tired or their arms or legs don't work. Okay, and that's really just because they're just getting tired, right? Um, pushing through that is not a safe thing to do. Uh, and trying to, trying to, you know, 
get to that goal without stopping and getting back to normal. Um, a couple quick examples there. The Grand Canyon uh, is another very hot, hot place in this earth, right? Uh, it's an incredibly beautiful place, but it's incredibly dangerous. And the main reason for that is because people look at this huge hole in the ground and they see, they look to the right and there's this trail that goes into this massive hole and you, and you can say, oh, I'm going to go take a couple mile hike down and just because I want to, because everyone says you got to go check it out. So what they don't realize is that at one point they're going to have to turn around and come back up. So they go too far, they turn around, and then they get into trouble. So knowing your limits, right, being prepared, those are all really important things. Understanding the activity that you're be, you'll be doing and recognizing, you know, the, the points and places where they, they might be dangerous. Uh, again, all into that preparation process. But as far as the signs and symptoms go, infants can overheat. Red, again, flushing, redness in the face, crying, ir, you know, irritation, irritability, um, uh, you know, uh, decrease in consciousness, slight decreases in consciousness, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, again, flushed skin. And then, you know, when you're getting to the point of heat, that's all heat exhaustion. So um, in infants, you know, they're not going to be able to talk to you and tell you what, what's going on. Keep an eye on their hydration. But, you know, keep continue to feed them if they're if if you're you know in, in a hot car together or if you're outside I should say and you're hot the baby's hot. All right, don't wrap the baby up because they're a baby and they need to be wrapped up. If it, if you're hot they're hot. Baby infants you know really and truthfully should be wearing similar clothes to what we're wearing you know after that newborn period. Okay. Um, uh, as you as kids are getting older uh, and more mobile, all right, um, you know, keeping an eye again on activity level, on um, on how much they, you know, how much they're drinking, uh, urine output, of course, is something that we always keep an eye on. So, watching the amount, you know, inc re recommending to keep an eye on the amount of wet diapers or how many times a kid pees. I talk about this in my clinic all the time, and more so with honestly, like the older kids and the teenagers in the summer. In regards to hydration, I ask them, I, I, I tell them to look at their pee. And they're like, what? Don't look, what are you talking about? Yeah. Why do I look at my pee? Well, as we all know, you know, concentrated pee is dark, okay? And cl clear pee is, is uh, definitely is, is an indication that you're drinking enough fluids, right, and less concentrated. So as part of my anticipatory guidance for act, part, participating, you know, outside in activities or sports is, you know, when you pee, look at your pee. If your pee is yellow... You're, you're, you have to drink, right? You really should be drinking fluids. Oh, I, I was talking to a pediatrician yesterday who was saying that he advises patients not to take their babies out in the heat at all right now. Is that something? It's probably it's a safe thing to do. It really is. It, uh, it's hard to gauge how the heat will impact uh, an infant. Absolutely. And again, like they're, they are, they cannot protect themselves. They, uh, it's, 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 it's a situation that can get dangerous very quickly. Mm -hmm. So ideally, you know, not coming, going outside is, you know, and staying in, in air conditioning or a place where you have fans or some sort of cooling is ideal. If you are going to go outside again, early in the morning, later in the evening, and just just to protect yourself and your your baby from, from potential heat related illness. 
And uh, most cities have community centers where kids can go and play, YMCA here in San Antonio, yeah. for example. North Star Mall, you know, think uh, Ingram Park Mall. You know, I'm just thinking of indoor malls around here that we have now. Um, but absolutely, malls are uh, good places to go. Um, you know, the city uh, and a lot of uh, charity organizations do have cooling centers. Uh, so look to look on the web at the San Antonio uh, city website, and they, they talk about the, uh, where the cooling, local cooling centers are. If, you're, if a patient's family uh, doesn't have air conditioning, uh, there are centers that are available, I believe, 24-7 uh, where they can go cool off. Um, or they should call 311 to find out where the lo- most, the closest, I should say, cooling center might be for them. Okay, that's that's great advice too. And what about, do you have any advice for teenagers? Um, and I mean, I can't believe here in Texas, it's like football practice in August on, in this field with no shade. And every year it seems like we hear about that's right. bad stuff that happens yeah heat stroke is is heat heat exhaustion and then heat stroke in these athletes so you know we all know that these kids are going out there and they're pushing it real hard because they want that number one spot on the team they don't want to look weak or they don't want to they don't want that person next to them to get the spot so this can be a very dangerous situation for for our our teenage patients uh, I think, again, I think a couple things there. I think it's important to remind teenagers to listen to their body, to, to know when, to, that they, need, when they need to stop. Um, so if, if, a, if someone feels thirsty, they need to stop and drink. Even if the coach says, you know, we're going to stop in half an hour, which honestly isn't happening as much anymore, I don't believe. But they should stop and drink some water. They have every right to do that. Um, if they feel like they're getting to that point where they're getting too tired or feeling dizzy or shaky or their arms or legs are feeling heavy, they need to get out of the heat. So they need to have that communication with the, with the coach to make sure that they stay safe. It's a hard one because, again, these kids, especially football players who are, are participating in fall sports and, and fighting for that spot, they're not going to do it. So w- with that said... Uh, UIL has actually come up with a number of guidelines for coaches at all levels um, of, uh, of sports uh, at, at public schools. And there are guidelines about hydration, about rest, about how long people can participate. They t- teach actually all the coaches annually about signs of heat exhaustion, signs of impending heat stroke, signs of rhabdomyolysis. So there's a lot more awareness now in schools, thank goodness, about heat-related in injury and illness. But I think it's really important to arm not only the kids but the parents with the information about staying safe out there. It was heartbreaking to hear what happened in Big Bend with the 14-year-old and his stepdad. And they were hiking out there and that tragedy that happened yeah. in the heat it can happen really fast, right? Like we talked about, and it can happen with adults really fast too. They were they were way out of sight. They were way outside of their safety bubble. They um, they had traveled there from out of state. They didn't really understand the topography ge- geography of the area. They brought a limited amount of water with them. They didn't. They thought they could go a lot farther than they could. And that same situation happened. When I talked about with the Grand Canyon. They got in way above their head. They didn't have any communication with with really the outdoor outside world 
Um, so they um, got into a really dangerous, scary situation. And out in Big Bend, where the temperatures can touch like 110, 115, um, with the heat index even higher, uh, you will your body temperature will cross that threshold of 106 degrees, which is essentially kind of that threshold for heat re- diagnosing heat-related illness a lot faster, of course. And after you hit that 106-degree threshold, as we all know, our body essentially breaks down, sh- shuts down, we go into shock, okay? We stop sweating, and then we start to have multi-organ, multi-system organ failure, and eventually uh, we don't perfuse the brain, and then we start to go into heat stroke, and, and, and then if that's not treated appropriately, unfortunately, people can die. You recommend finding places with water. Those might be the place, go-to places instead of what yeah. we're talking about here in the San Antonio area. There's lots of places that might be good to avoid. Pools, such as, right? Yeah. Pools are awesome. Water parks, splash pads, rivers. All those places are great places to recreate in the summer. Uh, you can get hot, you know, participating out there too. But the nice thing is you can go in the water, you can cool off, you you know, you can get out of the heat, right? Um, but, uh, you know, um, so yeah, I would say that those are the primary places. You know, those are great ideas for places where you can recreate right now. Of course, we're all going to the pools right now and trying to stay cool like that. We should mention the heat and cars Hundred percent, yes. So, um, and then, and uh, that's an, a really good point. Cars are ovens, right? And and uh, we've all seen the statistics. Um, you know, uh, we've all seen the information. I should say, you know, it might be eighty to or ninety degrees outside, and the inside of a car can creep up to one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty degrees, and very quickly. Um, and it, the, the fact of the matter is that it's not a matter of like an hour or two that a, 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 an infant or a toddler could potentially, uh, go have heat stroke and die. It's a matter of minutes, especially right now. So reminding families, maybe at that newborn visit, maybe those two, four, six, nine month visits to always remember to look in the back seat, even if their baby is not with them that day. Some cars even have a little thing, at, uh, you know, a little, a little uh, alarm that that goes off when you turn off the car to check back seat. That's great. Um, you know, it's a really good idea to make it a habit to if you have young children in your house to look in the back seat every time you turn off the car and get out, um, because when it counts, you'll do it, right? So that's really important. The other thing that I've I, I've come across um, and and recommend to families now is it sounds crazy, okay, but A family parks their car in the driveway unlocked, okay? You're inside working or making dinner, and the kids are outside playing. One of them potentially could get into the car if it's unlocked and and not be able to get out. Same situation. So another finer point might be to suggest to families to always lock their vehicle if, you know, to to not only make sure we keep all the bad guys out, but keep little kids out as well. That's great advice as well. Anything else you want to mention with regards to children and pediatric practitioners? Anything else we need to be conscious of that we haven't talked about? Yeah. 
So there's a continuum of heat-related illness and injury. Uh, it can it starts with really just from heat to heat from heat cramps all the way to heat stroke, and heat cramps just like you'd imagine. Okay, are cramps of the muscle. Most of the time, they're related to being dehydrated and having some mild electrolyte abnormalities, potassium, right? Uh, and you get these cramps. Um, when when these sort of things happen, this might be a precursor to going down the road of this continuum again of heat-related illness. So at that point, hydration, rest, getting out of the heat. Those are really important uh, uh, treatment options, treatments that need to be addressed at that point. A salty snack, okay, uh, would be also another good option. Half-strength Gatorade, G2 Gatorade also might be a consideration there. The next phase in the continuum of heat-related illness is heat exhaustion. And that can, it, it can vary a little bit with age as far as the presentation goes, but primarily that's when you start to feel tired. That's when your limbs start to feel heavy. You're red in the face. You're flushed. You're potentially at the beginning of it sweating profusely. You're tired. You're dizzy. You're nauseous. You're, you're starting to feel like you want to throw up. Those are the general symptoms that you'd have with heat exhaustion. Um, moving into heat stroke, okay, is when uh, is that fine line of, 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 of being able to compensate to decompensation and shock. Uh, once you start to be go into shock, your body is not perfusing your organs properly, which is also, also your brain. And something that I've learned in wilderness medicine is uh, to look at mental status as a vital sign. So if mm. the brain's not being perfused properly, something is wrong, and you're starting to potentially go into shock, right? So, if, uh, so this altered mental status is the big difference between heat exhaustion and heat stroke. That all has to do with the body going into shock, uh, your blood pressure going down, your heart's not able to pump as much blood uh, and to and get the good the appropriate perfusion to all of your organs, including your brain. Um, at that point, it's a life-threatening emergency. The treatment for heat exhaustion, severe heat exhaustion, heat stroke, is rapid cooling. There's two ways you can rapid cool. You can do it by uh, immersion into cold water or a cold, you know, or, or something cold, or you can do it by uh, do like an evaporative cooling. So I've worked uh, at the San Antonio um, Rock and Roll Marathon for a number of years as a medical volunteer. And mm -hmm. each of our tents, we have a baby pool. And we fill it up with water and ice and towels. And when patients come in having signs of heat exhaustion and might not know exactly what's going on and starting to creep the line of heat stroke, we don't even pass go. We dump them directly into the cold water, freezing cold water, ice floating in there. Okay, it's crazy. It can be crazy uncomfortable wow. if you think about it. But believe it or not, the, the best way to survive in these situations is to rapidly cool. There's no reason not to rapidly cool somebody who is really hot. So ice baths or a cold, cold water, okay, or a hose – of course, being careful to protect an airway if somebody's slightly altered, okay? But this rapid cooling is very important. Again, ice baths, cold water, hoses, rivers, you know, lake, you name it.
but it, you know, rapidly cooling is really important. We don't need to worry about it, the water being too cold no, too fast. No, absolutely not. I had a, on one of my big bend trips, I had a, uh, there was a guy on the trip who um, like rapidly exerted himself. He decided he wanted to run up the side of this hill real hard and he ran up there real hard and he came right back down and within like 10 minutes he was having like really severe heat exhaustion like could barely move was red in the face was dizzy and nauseous immediately we you know we took him to the bank of the river and we basically submerged him put a, a cold water a bandana with cold water on his head and i in, in within 15 or 20 minutes of that he was feeling much better. Mm. So another interest. So an interesting case here, you know, uh, at, at the at the marathons, okay, where these have these these ultra elite athletes, they run, um, you know, miles and train and train. Well, there's you know, ten to fifteen thousand people in these marathons, and don't they're not all ultra elite athletes. So they so they get overheated and they get they get heat exhaustion and potentially heat stroke. So what we, we, you know, the rapid cooling really works. We have, we've literally had patients who are at these marathons who are unresponsive. We rapidly cool them, and two hours later, they're going home. Wow. They're not going to the emergency room. They're not having to get, you know, huge, like an ambulance ride. They're rapidly cooled. Yeah, I mean, they feel pretty, pretty terrible, but they are... But they but they have a protocol there of rapid cooling and hydration, and they can act, they actually end up going home. They mm. follow up with their doctor, of course. One of the, um, you know, I think everyone who's listening would would also would is probably like, well, what about rhabdo? Well, heck yeah, right? Rhabdomyolysis can absolutely happen in these situations. So before they leave, we make sure they they urinate, uh, you know, and the, and that they and they're passing urine, and then um, we have them keep an eye out for you know, dark colored or, or, or bloody urine for the next day or two, but also to follow up with their doctor um, to uh, do some follow-up labs to make sure they're not, they don't, their myoglobin um, my levels aren't too high. I know you have resources here. I will put these links in the text for the podcast. This has been great, Rob. I'm so honored to be talking to you today, and I thank you for sharing your knowledge. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly. Don't forget to click on the link for free credit. Coming up next week, Drowning Safety. Did you know there's a new course that you can take for free MOC credit? And what should we be saying to patients about drowning prevention?